Hello and welcome to LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Nurse Assessment Coordination, ANAC. I'm your host, Rebecca, and today I'm here with Jesse McGill, ANAC Curriculum Development Specialist, to continue our podcast series called Deep Dive into MDS 3.0 Quality Measures. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks, Rebecca. I'm happy to be here. It's always great to have you, Jesse. So we are down to the last two measures of our deep dive series, percent of residents who were physically restrained and prevalence of behavior symptoms affecting others. Should we start with the restraints measure? Absolutely. This measure is a long stay measure. Again, that's residents with 101 or more cumulative days in the facility. And it indicates the number of these residents that were coded on the MDS as having physical restraints used daily. Jesse, I understand that the REI manual has a very specific definition for physical restraints. Does that definition impact this measure? It absolutely does. The REI defines physical restraints as any manual method or physical or mechanical device, material, or equipment attached or adjacent to the resident's body that the individual cannot remove easily and restricts freedom of movement or normal access to one's body. However, the REI also further defines remove easily and freedom of movement. Removes easily means that the manual method or physical or mechanical device, material, or equipment can be removed intentionally by the resident in the same manner as it was applied by the staff. For example, side rolls are put down and not climbed over. We also have to consider the resident's physical condition and ability to accomplish his or her objective, such as transferring to a chair or getting to the bathroom on time. Great, Jesse, that is very helpful. So would any physical restraint used daily trigger a resident for this measure? Great question, Rebecca, and the answer is no. There's only some of the restraints that actually trigger this measure if they're used daily. And that includes trunk restraint used in bed, limb restraints used in bed, trunk restraints used in a chair or out of bed, limb restraints used in a chair or out of bed, and a chair that prevents rising. This means that the use of a bed rail as a restraint, even if used daily, will not trigger this measure. However, if the bed rail meets the criteria of a restraint, the facility must still have all of the assessment, the benefit risk, the medical needs and symptoms documented in the medical record. In addition, there's another one that won't trigger for this measure, and that is a restraint that's coded under other. If coded under other, we still have to have all that documentation in place, but it will not trigger this measure. Jesse, are there any exclusions or covariates for this measure? For exclusions, any of those items I just listed that are used as a numerator or that the resident can trigger the measure for, if any of those items are dashed, then the resident will be excluded from this measure. There are no covariates for this measure, though. Thanks, Jesse. Is there anything else our listeners need to know about this measure? Yes. Coding of physical restraints on the MDS is an item that is often either under or overcoded. It is important to understand the REI definition that we discussed earlier in order to ensure an accurate reflection of the restraint use in your facility. The first key item to focus on is the effect the device has on the resident, not the device itself. For example, we may have two residents in the facility, both who wear a seatbelt while in a wheelchair. 
Both use this seatbelt to help with balance and positioning and to reduce risk of falling out of the chair. However, one resident is able to remove the seatbelt as it was applied, on command and as desired, while the other resident is unable to remove the seatbelt. The seatbelt has a different effect on these residents. The first resident's freedom of movement is not restricted because a resident can easily remove the seatbelt as desired. This would not be considered a restraint. While the other resident cannot remove the seatbelt and therefore his freedom of movement is limited by the seatbelt and it would be considered a restraint. Thanks, Jesse. That's a very helpful example. I know we frequently have questions from members who ask if medical equipment is considered a restraint. Can you address that, please? Yes, and the REI actually has a great coding tip that covers this question very well. It states to exclude from this section, which is the restraint section, items that are typically used in the provision of medical care, such as catheters, drainage tubes, casts, traction, leg, arm, neck, or back braces, abdominal binders, and bandages that are serving in their usual capacity to meet medical needs. And that last part is very key. These items, these medical items, must be used in their usual capacity and for medical needs of the resident. Thanks for sharing this great information on this quality measure, Jesse. Listeners, let's take a quick commercial break. You're invited to refresh, renew, and refocus at the APACN 2021 virtual conference this April 14th and 15th and April 21st and 22nd. Get ready for the new year and entirely new type of virtual event. Registration is now open. Members of ANAC, AADNS, and APACN save 50%. Learn more and register today at aapacn.org. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with Jesse McGill and move now to the quality measure prevalence of behavior symptoms affecting others. Thanks, Rebecca. And this is another long stay quality measure and can be triggered by residents who are coded as having the following conditions coded as occurring at least once during the seven day look back window. The presence of a physical behavior symptom directed towards others the presence of a verbal behavioral symptom directed towards others, the presence of other behavioral symptoms not directed towards others, rejection of care or wandering. Jesse, are there any MDS coding tips that are helpful to ensure these items are coded accurately? Well, of course there are. The first three behavioral symptom items are coded at E0200. And these include physical or verbal behaviors directed towards others. And then there are other behavioral symptoms not directed at others. The first two are just how they sound. Physical behaviors directed towards others include hitting, kicking, pushing, scratching, and grabbing. Any physical behavior directed towards others. And others could be staff. It could be other residents. It really could be any other person that that behavior is directed towards. Verbal behaviors directed towards others includes threatening others, screaming at others, cursing at others, just to name a few examples. However, the last item at E0200 is other behavioral symptoms not directed towards others. And this may include 
hitting or scratching self, rummaging, pacing, disrobing in public, vocal or verbal symptoms like screaming or other disruptive sounds. The next item that can trigger is rejection of care, which is also an item that is often miscoded. Rejection of care is defined in the REI as behavior that interrupts or interferes with the delivery or the receipt of care. Care rejection may be manifested by verbally declining or statements of refusal or through physical behaviors that convey aversion to or result in the avoidance of or interfere with the receipt of care. However, we must also determine if this rejection of care is an informed choice consistent with the resident's values, preferences, or goals, or whether this behavior represents an objection to the way care is provided, but is an acceptable alternative of care. Or we must determine if the approaches to care have been identified and employed and therefore is not rejection of care. It sounds like determining if the rejection of care aligns with the resident's values, preferences, or choices could be challenging for staff. How is this determination made? Oh, you hit the nail on the head there, Rebecca. This determination of preference over refusal is why this item is often miscoded. The key question to ask is, has this refusal or rejection of care already been discussed with the resident or representative? And if that discussion took place, was the resident's preference documented in the care plan? If it's already been documented in the care plan as a preference, then it's no longer a refusal or rejection of care. Consider this example. Many years ago, I worked with this gentleman and he refused to have his fingernails clipped. However, after further discussion with the resident, he stated he preferred to have longer fingernails since it helped him pick up objects. The team also discussed the cleanliness of his nails and the resident agreed that he would like to keep his nails long but clean. And the goal to keep them clean was also to promote his overall health. This was addressed and care planned. After the care plan was updated, refusals to have his nails clipped were not refusals because they aligned with his preferences of choosing how long his fingernails would be kept. However, if he refused to have his nails cleaned when they were dirty, this would not align with his current goals and preferences and would still be considered a rejection of care. That's a great example. Thank you, Jesse. There is one more item that could trigger this measure, wandering. Can you tell us a little more about this MDS item? Yes, and there is also an REI definition for this item. Wandering is the act of moving, and this can be walking or locomotion in a wheelchair, from place to place, with or without a specified course or known direction. Wandering may or may not be aimless. The wandering resident may be oblivious to his or her physical or safety needs. The resident may have a purpose, such as searching to find something, but he or she persists without knowing the exact direction or location of the object, person, or place. The behavior may or may not be driven by confused thoughts or delusional ideas, such as the resident believes she must find her mother, who the staff know is deceased. However, it is important not to code pacing as wandering. Pacing is coded as behavioral symptoms not directed towards others, 
and it is a repetitive walking with a driven or pressured quality. A few more additional coding tips are that wandering can occur inside a locked unit and traveling via a planned course to another specified place is not wandering. For example, the resident moves from their room to the dining room for a meal. This is not considered wandering. Thanks, Jesse. Are there any covariates or exclusions for this measure? Yes, there are a few exclusions. If any of the items discussed that were used in the numerator are dashed or skipped, then the resident would be excluded from this measure. In addition, if the target assessment is an OBRA discharge, return or return not anticipated, then the resident is excluded. There are no covariates for this measure. Thanks again, Jesse. Do you have any final thoughts? Since this is our last quality measure series podcast, I would really like to reinforce a message that I know we mentioned throughout the series. Quality measure success and achieving quality outcomes must be a facility goal. Nurse assessment coordinators play a huge role in understanding the specifications of each measure and ensuring the accuracy of the measure. But to see results and improvements, the entire nursing home team must be on board and working together. As we consider today's two measures, direct care staff documentation is critical. When it comes to device use and determining if a device is a restraint, the nurse's documentation of the effect the device has on the resident is a key factor in that determination. And with behaviors, it is so important that staff continue to document behaviors, especially those that happen every day. We may become used to these behaviors and start to underdocument, which may then appear to show improvements on paper where there's no actual change or possibly even worsening of these behaviors. However, we must also take action and work to identify interventions for these behaviors and work from the root cause forward. Again, focus on the entire team, not just on what the MDS tells us, because the MDS can only tell us what's already been documented. Thank you, Jesse. This has been a great podcast and a great series that is so helpful for our listeners. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast informative and helpful, don't hesitate to hit the subscribe button so that you never miss a future episode. For more resources and tools on quality measures, please visit our website at www.aanac.org.